Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of CEO Thought Leadership. I'm your host, Jennifer Klug, and today we have our special guest, David Bolton. He is chairman and CEO of Honigman Law Firm uh, with multiple locations uh, throughout the country. Uh, they have over 350 employees specializing in uh, intellectual property, private equity, corporate and securities, real estate, and litigation. Under David's leadership, Honigman has been named a high-scoring elite winner of the Best and Brightest Companies to Work For program in multiple regions across the country, uh, as well as a winner at the national level. Uh, David personally advises clients on mergers, acquisitions, divestitures, financial transactions, and public offerings. Welcome to the program, David. Thank you. I'm just delighted to be here. Oh, well, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, let's just swing right into it. You know, there's a lot going on with mergers and acquisitions. We're hearing a lot about it. We're seeing the, the ripple out factors of all of these mergers and acquisitions. For those listening um, that are unaware of the forces in play currently, as it relates to uh, your industry, give us a snapshot of what's happening, especially with inflation uh, and interest rates. So uh, our deal pace, our M&A deal pace, it slowed a bit. Um, it, it didn't disappear, but it slowed a bit. Um, seller pricing and buyer pricing you haven't quite matched up. In some cases, investment bankers have sort of oversold company earnings and performance, uh, and deals have died during due diligence. But our clients have money to spend. They've raised the money to spend. And our team leaders see the deal pace picking up we hit the fourth quarter. So things are starting, at least in the mid-market sector, where we are active to really pick up. Wonderful. Thanks for explaining that. It, so it is softening, but there's still cash out there, which is which is interesting. That That's really interesting. Um, you see other trends as a law firm, um, and usually law firms see things before the rest of the business world does. Uh, what do you see happening in the future as far as uh, business climate, uh, it, within the next six months to a year, what key indicators are you seeing? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty, um, and uncertainty is worse by far measure than certainty. If you know things are going to be good, that's great. If you know they're going to be bad, not as good. But there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. There's a you know, real uncertainty in the political climate. Um, as I mentioned, our, our M&A lawyers are think, seeing things pick up. Capital markets would expect them to. Our, our life science practice is growing, which probably is an indicator about what's going on in the world. Real estate is challenging, um, and particular office real estate. You read the news, you know what's happening with office space. And so that side of real estate uh, is looking negative, and the experts are predicting all sorts of negative things in the in the commercial office space. Yeah, well, we're we're seeing it too. We're hearing a lot of CEOs that are trying to decide what they're doing uh, with their offices on the commercial side, as well as hybrid work. So even if you have the lease, the building is still partially empty. Uh, and then in some of the bigger cities across the country, it's impacting the economy. Uh, so it, it's a problem. And in, in, in a lot of the major real estate uh, office properties, the, the debt is held by a servicer. 
not in the hands of a bank. There's really no one to negotiate with. And um, people are predicting some uh, generally problematic times in that area for some problems. They're calling it the bubble that's going to possibly pop. So that, that'll ripple out. We, we've seen it ripple out to other industry as well. It's definitely softening out there. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because it's important to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, you have the beautiful role of chairman and CEO. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not good because what you need to do as a CEO for operations isn't always in the best interest as the seat of chairman and vice versa. So why do you create synergy uh, between those strategic needs of both groups? Uh, give us some insight there on your on your leadership. We have our governance structure is very CEO-centric. But uh, the way I've operated is I walk around a lot. I talk to everybody I can. I probably have lunch or a cocktail two or three days a week with my colleagues. Um, we do rely on thought leaders. We we do talk things over, um, and I, I try to listen at all levels. Uh, even our newest people have something to add. We're very active in lateral hiring. People that come to us from another firm, I pick their brain. I'd like to know what's worked for them, what doesn't work, what's what they see working with us. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of a strategic planning process here. We have a committee of about a dozen or so important thought leaders in the firm. And then we probably have another 20 or 25 initially who we polled and surveyed and chatted with. And then as we start to make more out of it, we'll start to expand conversations. We'll have lunch and learn. We'll have different things so that we can get different views. We, uh, our view here institutionally is that it's times of uncertainty when the strongest businesses thrive. We have a great balance sheet. We don't borrow, but we have a tremendous amount of capital for the firm our size. And we are looking to take advantage of that in the current market that we're in. But with lawyers, it seems that everybody has an opinion. And so it's it's sometimes a challenge to get all these very smart, right-thinking people around one, you know, one concept. And generally, I believe that the best ideas um, are not mine. The smartest person in the room is the room. So we, we really try hard to open up decision-making and conversation. But of course, the buck stops here. I mean, at some point, we have to get to, we call it end of job. And right. that's... You know, somebody has to break the tie, so to speak. Well, that's interesting, Dave. You make it sound easy. Uh, so for our listeners today, there there were two really good examples of best practices at the CEO level. One is to walk the four corners of the office, uh, literally and figuratively, and listen and hear. So many executives don't do that. So that that's really, really important that you do that. Uh, and then, you know, Cash planning, investments, not having debt, um, being strong so when an economy softens, uh, you're ready for it, you're prepared for it so that you can seek the opportunity. It's, it's almost like a sale season when the economy gets well, a little weaker for those that are strong financially. Um, so 
David, you you said it so eloquently, but there's so many leaders out there that don't know those two best practices. So so thank you for sharing that. Let's shift gears a little bit. So you know, there's stereotypes of attorneys and lawyers out there. Um, it's mostly painted as a uh, non-diverse uh, world. Uh, and I know that you personally have taken steps to address this issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Tell us a little bit of your philosophy there. And for the naysayers, what actions have you taken and, and what results have you received? Because, you know, a lot of companies say, hey, we have DE&I or we're recruiting or we're going out of our way to, to make sure we're, we're getting diverse uh, group of minds. Expand on that for us, David. Sure, I'd love to do that. So um, law is a creative business. Uh, what what we do, where we add value, is by finding creative solutions. It's impossible for me to imagine a creative business that isn't diverse. And and I diverse in all respects, not just in the traditional uh, respects, but diversity in thought, diversity in background. It, it's it's very difficult if you have a a trial in a federal court in a community where the jury is, is likely to be part of color, part women, part other minorities. It's impossible to have four white men in the room theorizing on how to get that going. So we really have two places here. I'm I'm by heart and by nature very much into diversity and inclusion. That's just by nature. That's my political view. That's how I approach the world. But not everybody votes that way. Not everybody feels that way. And I think what we've done is we've persuaded the owners of the business that, you know, irrespective of what your own political view is, this is good for the business. You give money wherever you want to give money, vote whatever way you want to vote, but any way you look at it, it's good for the business. So that really, that's been the philosophy. We've got a few, we've got many people like me who just feel that way. And then we have others who know it's good for the business and as owners of the business, we have to operate that way. That said, we have a social responsibility, inclusion and equity partner here, Kalila Spencer, who is in charge of all of our efforts. We work closely together. She's a member of our board of directors, attends board of directors meetings. She's involved in attorney compensation. She's involved in our hiring. And she is here uh, in southeastern Michigan, where we're based. She is the leading DEI uh, person in law firm. She runs um, the collective that we have with our other firms. We've been, you know, in 2020, we led the Detroit law firms in speaking out against racial injustice after the Floyd murders and, and, and other similar events. And so we have a lot of focus on it. We have an attorney development program here. I, I've always believed that whatever we do to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion benefits every lawyer. So I'll give an example. We had several years ago situations where a first-year lawyer, if you were thorough, attentive to detail, a good writer and worked hard, you were a star. If nine years later you were up for partner and you were thorough, attentive to detail, and a good writer and worked hard, that wasn't enough. And we saw, frankly, that that was impacting our diverse lawyers more than not. And we 
spent a lot of time and effort. We hired a consultant and we created, we took the best lawyers offsite, gave them work assignments, and we created a core competency program for every two years of a lawyer's career going up to their 10th year with each lawyer having an individual um, plan so that we could tell you after two years, this is great, but in the next two years, you need to do this, this, and this. And you knew where you stood. We have a full-time C-level executive who runs it, it's Abby Stover. She's a former star real estate lawyer in the firm, which she got involved in management. The real estate department wasn't very happy with me, but she runs it. She has a, a full staff and in, we work with Kalila on the diversity aspects of it. Um, a couple other things we do as part of our commitment. In 2022, we received something called Mansfield 5.0 certification, and that's been increased to 6.0. Mansfield is a program in law, which is similar to the Roney rule in football, that when coaching opportunities became available, a certain percentage of the folks considered uh, had to be diverse. Uh, what it's what it's done for me, uh, when we ask people if they're interested in a job, people are raising their hand that I had no idea had interest in leadership. And we're finding a lot of leaders that were just hitting from us. And it's diverse lawyers and not diverse lawyers. And our core competency program, program, that's paid off for everybody. That's not just minorities and diverse lawyers. It pays off for everyone. Um, similarly, now don't get me going because I can talk about this topic. <laughs> similarly, we recognize that PI does not start in law school. It's too late. PI probably starts at birth, at grade school. It starts with children that are born at the chalkboard and children that were born miles away. And so we do a lot of things pre-law. So we're active in something called TutorMate where our folks, about a hundred of them, read to second graders in inner city schools once every week or two. We then have a graduation and we hand out diplomas. A little later than that, we have something called the Hodigman Academy. About five years ago, we worked with our United Way and the Detroit Public Schools. And we have about 20 10th graders from Cody High School, which is a inner city high school, turnaround school. And we have them in for a 12-week session. They get grades. Um, Kalila actually gives them billable hours instead of grades. So an A is five billable hours, a B is four billable hours and such. But what we do, we recognize most of these kids are not going to go to a four-year college. And they're not going to be ready for law school right away. So we show them all the things that a law firm does budgeting, project management, accounting, and they they do law, they work on law, and they present a case to a, to a real judge. But they also go through the departments in the firm so that they can see things that are realistic places to work with a two-year degree and maybe go to law school at night or something like that. And then lastly, um, example, we're part of something called Thrive Scholars. Thrive Scholars started in medicine. It's about 15 years old. And what it basically said, it started to ask why really smart, particularly black kids were going to be a doctor. And the next thing they knew, they started at a great school 
and they were majoring in psychology, what was happening? And what they learned was that in that case, STEM work as a teenager was a very helpful background. And they would get sponsors for, for medical systems and the kids signed a contract and they were involved in STEM education from ninth, 10th grade on it. It's been remarkably successful. They've just created a cohort, cohort in law. Uh, we've sponsored two young people now. It's similar. It's a STEM. They have no obligation to work for us. They have no obligation to even come where one of our offices are. We mentor. Uh, we're doing all that because we just think that the DEI does not start in graduate school. Yeah, that's amazing. There, there are so many best practices here. Uh, let's unpack it uh, for a minute. You have somebody assigned to accountability. You have somebody assigned to metrics and progress. You have outside sources guiding you. Uh, and then you're starting at such a young level to promote the industry and the trade of being a lawyer. Uh, so many good things here. I am not surprised on how high you all score on being a best and brightest company to work for. I, I mean, you've done your diligence, you're approaching it in a very smart, pragmatic way. And um, it's to be commended. And, and I would encourage anyone listening, if you are struggling with anything like this, use this model of purposeful action and accountability. Uh, and I would imagine that they could reach out to Huntington and get some tips, I, I would imagine. Kalila has very often um, presented businesses we love to share, you know, as optimistic as I am and positive as I am, I couldn't finish the topic without telling you we have a long way, a real long way to go. And I think in particular, we have a long way to go because there are more and more people in the community, kids who are not getting prepared for us. I mean, most of us here are middle class or more that, that they're, you know, we didn't worry about food security when we went to school. We didn't worry about safety getting to school. And so as long as that part of the community is growing and is unserved, we're not, we're not going to get done. Yeah. Well, I think we all have a long way to go and we, we all need to take action. And it's the magnitude of small actions together that make change happen. So, so thank you for sharing that. I also found it interesting that when you described the practice of being an attorney, uh, you said it was a creative business. Most of us would not pin being an attorney creative. We would think it's it's very straightforward and pragmatic, but that that was also interesting. And I hope our, our listeners caught that. So let's let's shift gears. Artificial intelligence is getting a lot of hype right now. You as an attorney, I'm sure there's all kinds of, whenever something new happens, there's all kinds of uh, law related to it that needs to be established and precedents established and what have you. What are your thoughts on AI um, from a legal perspective? And then are you using it within your firm? It, it's here. Um, we're, you know, the legal business is in some respects daughter you know, 200 years ago. I mean, I always tell my doctor friends that if, if you practice medicine the way we practice law, you'd probably still be leeching blood from us. But firms like ours are all about delivering value. That, that's what we have to do. That's our ad, we deliver value. 
and part of that is creativity. There's an element of this that I don't think any program or machine or whatever will duplicate yet, or at least in my lifetime, which is epic. We get paid for empathy. We get paid for judgment. We get paid for creativity. But that's that. A lot of what we do is just project based. It's 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 no different than building a bridge. It's no different than putting a building together. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it that does not require a, a, a brilliant lawyer to do it. It's here. Innovation is here. Process is here. We're already using AI. Um, we use AI for due diligence. It reads documents much quicker than humans do with much less error. It can create reports. It can do things that are better done by software than by, by lawyers. And it, it, it can give us intelligence about judges that we're in front of. It can tell us how they've ruled on certain matters. It can help us develop phrases that appeal to them. It's there. And so we need to get, we need to use it. We need to learn it. Uh, a lot of people are, are focused on chat box. That's a very controversial tool in law. There have been some examples where lawyers have used it to write briefs and it's just made up case law. Right. And that, that's technically not complying with your ethical obligations. There are um, serious ethical obligations about putting client information into the public which some of this does, we, we now have a policy on using it. And we have an entire technology committee between lawyers and technical experts that's, that's focused on how we do this, how we do it safely, and how we innovate, not just through technology, but through processing. Who does what? We, we now have, of our 350 lawyers, we probably have 30 who are not traditional partner track lawyers. They are lawyers who are highly technical, technically able. They apply this, the technology for us. They do due diligence. They do the summaries. It's very efficient for our clients. And lastly, it's expensive. We, the investment that law firms have to make in this is, is very, very expensive. I once had a cohort tell me, I got to spend a million dollars to get three million dollars fewer in fees, how, how am I going to how, how am I going to get that to work? Well, you can make it work, but it is expensive. It's here, um, and it, it's just not going anywhere. We we are we want to be we're too small to invent, so we really want to be the first to adapt. We want to be early honors. Yeah, well, you brought up some good points. Once things are out there, client confidentiality is an issue. Who owns what's being produced is an issue out there, I'm sure, uh, and, and ethics around it. But it, it's not going anywhere. We we all have to get our arms around it. Uh, and, and the more that people use it, the better it gets. But uh, we've heard quite a bit about as far as sourcing and referencing material or research that that's not the the strongest attribute for, for AI yet, right? So all well, their it will be at some point the big companies. A lot of this is still in startup hands, but at mm -hmm. some point the big companies that are vendors to the legal world, they're going to buy these and they're going to combine other of their tools to make these things 
Yeah, and it's going to happen fast. Uh, I I heard an expert last month talk about it's it's going it's going quick. If you don't adapt to learning how it can help your business, you might not be in business in two to five years. It's just one of those things. It's it's almost like when uh, computers first came out. Remember that, or the internet first came out. Uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit. You know, talent talent is an issue out there right now, especially for more of the advanced degree uh, fields and industries. So the talent pool is shrinking from two perspectives. Uh, we have boomers leaving. We have uh, women starting to come back, but they left during the pandemic for caregiving. Work is increasing. As you mentioned, clients had money, so they're spending it. There's more deals happening out there. And there's there seems to be some burnout out there. How do you provide or continue pr- to provide exceptional service with those kind of talent demands? Well, you know, this is uh, complicated as we make it. And it's challenging as technology and whatnot. It's a very simple business we have. It's a people business. It's lawyers and it's clients. And you want to have the best lawyers and you want to have the best clients. Um, uh, we aggressively recruit the top students. You know, I, I always distinguish between a business's values and its culture. Our values today are identical to the values we had 75 years ago when we formed. And one of the core values was get the best lawyers and pay them the best. And that's something we have a lateral recruitment team. I mentioned Abby Stover and her development team. We have the resources for people to grow. We want to create an environment where they grow. It, it, this is a very difficult business. You know, I tell my colleagues, when I started here, we didn't have a computer. We didn't have a fax machine. There was no Federal Express. Ow. They didn't have a mobile phone. And I had time to think. I had time. I, you couldn't, if you had my phone number at home, you could reach me, but otherwise you couldn't. And it gave me time to think. I could reflect, I could process, then I put the agreement in the mail. I got two or three days till the other person got the agreement. And now there's so much stress, so much pressure that, that, that we're under that we really care about wellness. We've really never spoken about wellness. Uh, it's one of the most important things that our development team works on. Um, the pandemic didn't help us with wellness. There were studies about excessive drinking, stress, loneliness. Um, you couldn't see each other. The camera was off on the Zoom call. I didn't know what you looked like and if you looked good or you didn't look good. So we try very hard to hire the best, to train the best and to be mindful of our wellness. And of course, having great work, mm-hmm. not a bad thing for recruiting. You know, one thing about lawyers, they like good work. They like challenging work. They like sophisticated work. And if you can provide somebody challenges, then it it, it, it goes a long way. Fortunately, we're not all bad full time. That, that makes training very difficult. You know, when you're in a same room as the partner and they put their hand on the mute button and tell you why they're doing what they're about to do, that's a learning. Yeah. Do that on a Zoom call. Uh, when you're walking back from the courthouse and stopped for lunch with the partner, they will tell you what they did and why they did it. And that becomes more and more challenging. And as work-life, I didn't have work-life balance when I started here. No such thing. 
but as work-life balance becomes appropriately more important to people, uh, that's something you have to provide. But again, that's our business. That's that's what we have. It's all we offer our, our people. Yeah. Well, let's keep on this theme, David, because there are a lot of young people out there in college right now taking the pre-law with the intent to go to law school. You just described a very intense environment. Uh, what advice would you give a young person that wants a career like yours and the success that you have had? Well, it it, it may sound interesting, but uh, funny. Uh, learn accounting and finance. I don't care what your major is. You don't have to be an accountant or finance. Learn it. It's the language of business law. Everything we do is about money and help our clients get more of it and help our clients save it. And so speaking the language of our client is a huge advantage. I had the good fortune of having a degree in business before I went to law school um, and being able to understand the client's objectives through the language of finance or accounting really is helpful. And you don't need to be an accounting major. There's accounting courses in all schools, finance courses. Uh, I would also say do get work habits, develop really good work habits. For most of the people we hire, being a lawyer is no harder than it was being a law student, at least in the first year, they work hard, do good work. And I always say, make a lot of friends. Have people respect you. Everyone you interact with is a potential client one day. When we, when we bring our first yeah. year lawyer, when we bring our first year lawyers together and they all want to hear about business development, they, they all, they all want to hear about it. The first thing we tell them is if you haven't already started in law school, it's too late because everybody you're around, you don't have to sell. That, that doesn't right. mean you're selling, but you need to be liked and respected. And there's no better time to start that than, than with your, your classmates. And so for me, you know, and, and then when you start, you know, treat everybody in the law firm like a client, the partner you work for, your colleagues, turn in the work. People are paying you a lot of money for your time. And so I think that's what I would, and have fun. I mean, I, I'll say do something that's fun. This is such a hard job, so much stress that if you can't have fun when you're doing it, you need to look for something else. Yeah. It, and there's fun in the work. It, it's an attitude, right? So if the work's coming at you, it's just like you would attack any challenge outside of work. It, gamify it, make it fun. If I get this done, I'm going to reward myself with this. Or, it, it's really good advice, David, on, on managing those high stress positions like that. So everyone's had some monumental moments in their career. You have a diverse range of clients. You've been in some high profile cases. You know, the things that have made a profound impact uh, on the legal profession. Is there a particular case that taught you something that you still apply to your world today that others can learn from? Well, I, I'm going to give you an example in a minute that wasn't me, but was a profound moment for the law firm that I'm the proud chair of. But, you know, you mentioned... I've had some great clients over the years and they've become great friends. One of the things that you like more than anything is when your client starts to tell you about their kids and the kids in school and, and doesn't just want legal advice, but is interested in your advice about their relationships, their personal relationships. And I've had the good fortune to make 
a lot of really great friends um, from my practice. I think in terms of, a, I'm going to shift if it's okay, the okay. firm has a long-time relationship with the Detroit Institute of Art. And several years ago, the city of Detroit went bankrupt. Lost. Yeah. Detroit's the only major market where the art belonged to the city. And the creditors wanted to sell art to pay pension. We could have taken a lot of sides in that, made a lot of money, but we stayed with the we stayed with the museum and we created uh, legislative solutions. We had the attorney general kind enough and persuaded by us to write a legal opinion that the art did not belong to the city, but it belonged to a public trust. We advocated, we made it clear that that bankruptcy would be fought tooth and nail over this issue. Ultimately, um, something called the grand bargain arose because of this, and the grand bargain uh, was foundations by the Ford Foundation. It really hadn't done anything in Detroit, it's New York. Uh, and we were at the forefront of negotiating the grand bargain. And it was the creativity of going to the attorney general, not starting in court, not starting there, and persuading the attorney general of what the law should be, uh, and being correct at that. When the DIA grand opened after the bankruptcy, there was a gala affair, could have been in New York, looked great. And in the chairman's speech, he thanked the law firm. So for me, yeah. uh, it happened to me because I was the chair of the law firm. It wasn't me. I was just a supporter. But I think for me, that was the the, the, the biggest element. Yeah. And, and what, I've, what I've learned over the years, to go back to this, is handling stress is probably the most important thing a lawyer does. Yeah. Your stress the team stress, your client stress, and very few people can handle stress. Very few people can do it. And when you can't, it makes everything harder. And when you can try to make, even in that most serious DIA, people have fun. People found a way that it's serious work. And so I think that the, the greatest lesson that I've learned from all of this is handling stress is critical. Yeah. Well, let's let's shift gears and talk about you as a human. Uh, everyone usually views people in the business world by their title, you know, chairman, CEO. That can be intimidating for many, uh, but we're people just like everyone else. Uh, and um, how do you personally manage stress? You just said that not many people can handle stress. What do you do? in demanding situations? How do you make it fun or, or how do you handle that? I have a morning run during the week, every day, outside whenever possible, as long as there's not ice. On the weekends, my wife, Elise, and I try to walk our dogs in the town. Uh, that really helps. Uh, I have a wonderful marriage and I love unwinding at the end of the day. Got to admit, there's a cocktail or two involved. We have great friends, friends help. And I must tell you that there are a number of my colleagues here who are not only great friends of the family, but are fun to be around. Even in the most stressful situation, as serious as we are, we'll try to find a joke. We'll try to find a way out. And that's really, and I, as I said earlier, I do like to get out and, and break bread with my colleagues, with our clients, with others. I find that having a meal together is a great way of relaxing and 
Look, I'd love to visit all of our offices. I'll be in one of my offices tomorrow. There'll be a dinner, all the partners, an all attorney lunch. I'll be in another office the next day. And that really is a ritual for me. Yeah. And I love sports. I've got seven kids. I, I watch my kids play sports. I coach sports. And that, that's a, another thing that I'd love to do. That's a different kind of stress, right, David? <laughs> A um, couple more personal questions here. Do you have any quirky pet peeves? I do, and and it, I share them with my wife and my vice chair, Alan Schwartz. Let's stand for you, Rammer. So me and I, him and I, her and I. I don't like misspelled words. I, I have to admit that you know there are words that have become words through misusage, and yeah. that bothers me a lot. <laughs> And I and and Alan and I joke about it. We see more and more of it in very bright people. So that's that's a pet peeve. Well, I have to get you a, a badge as the grammar police. Wear <laughs> on your lapel. Well, what when, when I when I did when I did public offerings, we would have drafting sessions. The underwriters, the lawyers, and uh, we all be around the table. And I would ask who went to parochial school. And inevitably, if there's 15 people there, there are a few that went to parochial school. And I said, you are officially in charge of grammar. You, you went through a school where you had to learn grammar. So you raise your hand whenever there's an issue, and we'll follow your... Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Uh, do you have any hidden talents or unique hobbies? Well, I no longer, but I, I was a bass player in um, rock bands when I was a teenager. Uh, but that wasn't so much a talent as a hobby, and I haven't picked one up in 45 years. Although I do have a son who's a symphonic bass player who really is good. So it, it went there. But that that was a long, long time ago. So whenever I say that, I'm living in the past. Yeah. Now, um, David, this is you know kind of a, a goofy question here, but we we. We'll learn a lot about you as a human. Uh, and let's end on this question. How do you define happiness? That's a great question. Being loved, family, health. You, know, you, can't, you can't be happy. And my late father had a great expression. He would say that a healthy man has a million problems and a sick man has one problem. Yeah. Laughing, family and friends, being in the moment, doing what I do. I often stress that I did earlier in our conversation. I like what you're doing. You better do something else. And moments like these make me happy. Yeah. Yeah. Sharing knowledge for the next generation or for those that who might be struggling is, is quite wonderful. David, you have been amazing. Thank you so much for your insights. And uh, congratulations on all your success and, and future success. We, we know we're rooting for you. We know you're going to just continue to do amazing things for your firm. Um, and we just tell you to keep shining bright. Thank you so much for being on the program. And thank you for honoring us, letting me be honored. Wonderful. Have a good day, everyone.